Alright. How you guys been? It's been a few weeks since I've been here. You're getting closer and closer to the end of Mark. Do you guys know how long you've been in Mark? It's been a minute, right? Probably like is it a year? Has it been has it gone a year? You guys know you're in Mark, right? Okay. <laughs> Alright. Well what oh let me get this. What we're going to be talking about today. And we've kind of been building here over the last few weeks, and I'm sure next week's going to focus on it quite a bit, is really the, the central point, well, not only of redemptive history, but like of human history. If we look at the Old Testament, all throughout the Bible, thousands of years of God working through his people, it's been building and building and building towards the cross. And then in the New Testament, after we read about it in the Gospels, the apostles are looking back on the cross. What's happening now in light of the cross? That's what we look back to. The Old Testament saints were looking forward to the cross. They anticipated it, even though they didn't know all of the, the details. They didn't understand the particulars. And then the apostles and us, we look back at the cross as this monumental event. And then if you read in Revelation, we are going to be singing and celebrating what happened on Calgary for forever, really. There's nothing more important than the cross and as Christians, we celebrate the cross all the time. We display it places. We have a big one behind our pulpit. Churches have them outside their buildings, really high. People wear them around their necks. Anybody have a crucifix necklace on today? No? Anybody have cross tattoo? Some people get tattoos of them, which is kind of weird, right? The cross is a tool of execution. You don't see many guillotine necklaces or celebrations about gas chambers. The cross was a tool of execution, and it's wrapped in tragedy, horror, scandal. But also, apart from the, the bloodiness of it, we see glory, beauty, and wonder. So this morning, as we look at the cross, I pray that it would drive us to, to not dwell on the, the gruesomeness of it. We will talk about it, but drives us to think about who Jesus really is and what he did on our behalf. And through the parody that was put, being put on of a mock king from Jesus' enemies, we'll see what kind of perfect king he actually is. So let's go ahead and stand. Today we'll be in Mark 15, verses 16 to 32. Mark 15, 16 to 32. But I'm actually going to jump back one verse and start at verse um, 15 to help kind of flow into this week. And I'm also going to read this in the tone that I think is clear in the text, usually when we read scripture, we're very serious and solemn out of respect for what we're reading, which is good, but I think sometimes we miss kind of the, the feelings behind the words. So I'm going to go ahead and read Mark 15, 15 to 32. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released him, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put, on, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with them they crucified two ro- and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Go ahead and take a seat. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, the the images we get in our mind of the cross are, are striking. They challenge us. They can stir up feelings within us. I pray that as we consider these things today, we would uh, not see the cross as just a method of torture, but as a method of redemption, as something that has saved us from from uh, rightful judgment for our sins. Pray that you would be with us, guide us in our thinking this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've all been here through this journey through Mark over these many months, I'm betting it's been a bit of a year. These last few weeks are kind of shocking to read. If you were to read the whole thing at once, if you were to read Mark, it'd probably take you like an hour and a half to read the whole thing, depending on your reading skill and how often you have to jump back because you forgot what you just read. But if you were to read this as a whole, these last few weeks, it starts to be a bit surprising because like the first 10 or 11 chapters of Mark, they're pretty fast-paced. Mark is pretty efficient with his words, and they're basically shouting, Christ is glorious, Christ is powerful, Christ has authority. We see his authority, we see his kindness, we see his sovereignty, his ability to perform miracles. He seems to be this coming um, king that he's declared himself to be. He does pepper in now and again how the Son of Man would need to suffer, would need to die, etc., but that's almost drowned out by so much good, cool stuff happening. Peter definitely missed all that uh, death stuff. We mostly hear Jesus being hyped up as this king, and yet these last few weeks and leading up to today and next week, we're seemingly seeing Jesus defeated. We find him being mocked, spit on, beaten, and we see him ultimately hung up with criminals on either side who... Even the criminals are reviling him. This is supposed to be the son of God. In Jesus' words, he's the king who is to reign forever. This isn't how this story is supposed to end. But here we see Mark being, I think, very purposeful in what he's writing. We've had this fast-paced buildup, but now these last few weeks are really slowing down so we can feel the weight of these moments that Jesus is experiencing as he's being nailed on the cross and hung and dying. So what are we to make of this? Well, we're going to work through it together today to see what we're to make of Jesus on the cross. But before we do that, I want to level set just a little bit of what is actually happening to Jesus here in terms of what he's been sentenced to, this execution. Uh, Mark kind of just breezes by it when when he talks about it. He spends a lot more time on the peripheral details, which are saying something really important that we'll get to. But I think Mark assumes of his readers something that we, 2,000 years removed, aren't as familiar with. Um, If I were to say that somebody was executed by guillotine, even though we don't know that now, you probably know what that means, right? You guys know what a guillotine does? How how do you die from a guillotine? Chops chops your head off. Maybe I shouldn't have used guillotine. I forget how young you guys are. So we know that. Typically, we wouldn't need to have a guillotine execution described to us. But if you look at like verse 24, Mark writes, it just says, and they crucified him. No description, no description offered. Uh, Mark, again, is very efficient with his language. 
But that's all that was necessary for Mark's audience. They were very, very familiar with what a crucifixion was. If we were, well, we're going to, if we look at a crucifixion now, it's pretty extreme. It's a pretty horrific event. But in Jesus' day, these were happening all the time. It was common practice. And you've probably heard some of this before, but I I am going to explain to you just a little bit what a crucifixion is, because it really was a hideous thing to do to somebody. Um, Quite atrocious. And even the people of the day, like philosophers of the day, even the common people, they knew that the cross was a little bit of overkill, pun semi-intended. Uh, they, too, were kind of like, we probably shouldn't be doing this to people, no matter what they did. And, in fact, they wouldn't do it to a Roman citizen. Someone with the high honor of being a Roman citizen couldn't be crucified like this. But typically, what would happen for someone sentenced to death by crucifixion is that they would start by being scourged which is why I went back one verse into verse 15. We saw that Jesus was scourged after he was sentenced by Pilate. To be scourged means that they would be whipped with a multi-tailed whip that usually had pieces of bone and rock and glass embedded in it. This is just a a mock-up of one um, here. I found that you can actually buy replicas of these on Etsy if you're some kind of weirdo, Um, but I didn't want to give you a link to that. But this is what it would look like. Uh, It would have these... It's not just a normal whip that maybe has knots on it that would really hurt, but you would whip someone's back with this, and it wouldn't just smack and slide off. These portions of glass or bone or rock would dig in to the flesh, and then when they ripped it away, it would take away skin, flesh, along with it, just so that they could do it again. Very, very hardcore. Um, you may be familiar with this somewhat famous picture. I don't know if you've seen this before. It's of a, of a slave from uh, American history that had healed from being whipped, it's very unlikely that he was actually scourged or scourged with this type of tool. This alone is despicable and, and man-stealing, like in American slavery. The Bible would say it's punishable by death, and I wouldn't argue hard with that. But you would even have to crank this up a notch to, to consider what it would look like for someone to be scourged. It's really, and that's just the beginning of the mess. But after being beaten like that, if the person survived the scourging, which many did not, Then the victim would be stripped down to maybe a loincloth or nothing at all. Humiliation is part of the show here. And eventually they would be nailed to a horizontal beam with nails going through their palms or through their wrists. And when you think about nails, we're not talking about hanging pictures on a wall. We're talking about nails like would be holding railroad together, big, thick nails. While doing this, while nailing the hands or the wrists to the horizontal board, that, that would then be connected to a vertical beam, hence making the cross. And then they would nail the, the feet also to the beam or to a platform through either like the ankle area or the instep. Now, I, I found some skeletons for you to look at here because it was tolerable. I found some reenacted images of what it would actually look like, and it made my stomach turn. I, I can't even imagine how painful this alone would be. If you've ever kicked something hard with your instep, you know that that's no picnic. So once the victim is then hanging there, the way that they die on the cross is typically rather slow. Uh, In scripture, we actually see that Pilate was surprised that Jesus died so quickly. But when they hang you there, your knees are usually slightly um, bent so that it would take effort from you to be able to lift yourself up so that you could breathe properly. As you start to sag, yeah, your lungs can't function properly, so you have to either lift yourself up with your arms or with your legs. 
Uh, when your arms get tired and can't do it anymore, they start to stretch, the muscles start to tear, the nerves start to be damaged. I mean, if you've ever done arm circles for more than 30 seconds, you know that your arms get tired pretty quickly. So in order to still be able to breathe, if you can't hold yourself up with your arms, you have to push yourself up with your legs, putting your full body weight onto your feet, which again, have a nail driven right through them. And as you're sagging and pushing yourself back up, you're also rubbing your wide open back wounds against a splintery wooden beam. Each time you're doing this, just to catch your breath is incredibly intolerable. And that gets you one or two seconds of relief where you can breathe before you sag down and have to start all over again. And amazingly, people could last several days doing this. That's what it most often was, is it would be a couple days of agony for people. And what they would eventually die of was something like suffocation, because they could no longer catch their breath, basically. It'd be like having the wind knocked out of you over and over and over until you just can't get your next gasp of air and you die. So this was capital punishment, obviously, which... I do believe that there is a place for, but we don't want to put this on par with things like lethal injection or the electric chair that we know of today, or even things we would think are outdated like a firing squad or hangings or even the guillotine. Those are all decaf compared to this. Those are PG options when compared to this violent kind of death that we have in crucifixion. And as I said, Roman citizens, it, that's too much to, to do to a, an honorable Roman citizen. And yet this is how Christ died. This is what he endured for us. And yet, given all this, when you read through the passage, very little detail is paid to any of this. The actual practice of crucifixion is just breezed over. There's not really description about the nails, so to speak. There's not much about the blood or anything like that. All it says is, and they crucified him. I'm about to get pretty disappointed with how old I'm getting and how young you are. Who in this room was alive in 2004? Okay. A few of you, mostly just the leaders. Well, I was, a, I was a freshman in college in 2004, and those of you that were alive and would have seen movies, which narrows it quite a bit more, might remember the third highest grossing film of that year was The Passion of the Christ. Have any of you seen, seen that? Okay. I actually wouldn't rewatch that myself now. I have some convictions about images of Jesus that, that I'm uncomfortable with, but even if that weren't the case, that's a hard watch. Uh, I remember being in the, the theater for that. Now, that movie is very focused on the suffering of Christ, a lot of focus on the lashings, on the beatings, on the nails, on the suffering. It's a pretty, pretty brutal uh, movie, and I can remember people weeping inside the theater during it. I remember some people leaving because they couldn't handle it. It affected me for sure. I can still see some of the images in my mind. And yet, in our actual account, especially from Mark, very little attention is paid to that. It's really focused on these side events, not so much on the big brutalness, the brutal nature of the crucifixion, but it's more around the, the words of Jesus's enemies surrounding the events of the cross and the little jokes and jabs at his expense. And then in later weeks, there'll be focus on the words of Jesus and the words of the Roman centurion uh, at the end. The section we read does lay out some chronological facts for us. It's telling us what literally happened. But in this section, it's mostly focused on people humiliating, mocking, injuring Jesus. And in their doing that, we start to learn more about who he actually is. So there's irony in that, in, that in the mocking of the crowds, they're demonstrating things that are actually true. So what they're treating as a parody, we see is actually being made perfect 
in Jesus. So that's what we're going to go through today. So we're going to start looking at this perverse parody. I don't know who knocked the the things off center, but hopefully you can kind of read some of that. But what our first section is telling us here uh, is that a whole battalion of soldiers, that's one of the first things we get, is a whole battalion of soldiers was brought in to be part of this joke. Uh, This entire scene that we read about here is a pretty gross and blasphemous treatment of the one who created the heavens and the earth, who would eventually claim all power and authority in the universe. But he was scorned by a whole battalion of Roman soldiers. And now, a battalion is not like a little small group of people. Uh, I don't remember if it was in Mark's Gospel or not. When you guys talked about Gethsemane, was a battalion mentioned? Not sure if they mentioned battalion or not. If not... I'll give you a little trivia now. A battalion is, a, is like a unit of measure when talking about a, a group of soldiers. It can be anywhere between 300 and 1,300, most commonly referring to about 600. Cohort is another word for it. But if we're just to take the lowest end of that and say 300, that's a huge group of soldiers being in on this mockery of Jesus. These soldiers would have been coming from uh, surrounding nations. They would all be Gentiles. And we actually get a little tiny preview of so, some level of fulfillment of Psalm 2, where, we're, where we read about the, the nations raging in diabolical and devilish partnership with Israel. Of course, the Israeli, they don't call themselves Israelis, the Jewish religious leaders of the day scheming behind this whole thing, working together with uh, the Roman state to work against the King of Kings, against God. But all these 300-plus soldiers were gathered inside this courtyard of the governor's mansion, and they're humiliating Jesus. We know he's already been scourged um, right before this scene. Maybe it was happening again. But now, just to kind of shower him with insult, they wrap him in a purple cloak. This most likely wasn't a nice new purple cloak. It was probably ragged cloak from one of the soldiers that now looks purple after being red for a long time. It's got loose fibers sinking into his open wounds. Um, And if you remember, purple is like a royal color. And in the Old Testament especially, we know purple was a very expensive uh, color of fibers to have. But even in this modern era, the emperor would wear a big purple cloak. He would also wear a golden crown. So to kind of finish it off, they made a crown of thorns for Jesus and put it on his head and then hammered it in place with a stick to kind of look like a, an imperial scepter. Driving those thorns into his skull would surely have all kinds of bleeding. And then they bowed down in mock homage to him to say, Hail, King of the Jews. And you can imagine the sarcasm just dripping from these words. This is like when, you know, somebody does something stupid and you say, Way to go, Einstein. You know, that's a little bit of sarcasm here. Crank that to like a million here as they're mocking um, Jesus, just dripping with disdain as they do it. And also keep in mind, they were making fun of Jesus here, but there would also be um, Jewish people kind of in the audience of this. So they were also kind of making fun of the Jews in a way, who the soldiers wouldn't really be holding in high regard. This fake salute, this fake honor they were showing to Jesus would also be saying to the Jews, look at what a joke of a king you supposedly have. The text also tells us that they specifically were spitting on him. This is obviously a huge sign of disrespect and is pretty gross, but we're also seeing very particular details come together here. And this whole scene that we're seeing is fulfilling in perfect specificity 
what Jesus predicted about himself from five chapters earlier in Mark 10, 33 to 34. Uh, just to read the whole thing, it says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Done. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Done. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Done, 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 and almost done. And after three days, he will rise. Spoiler alert, that happens uh, next couple times you meet. All of this is perfectly fulfilled. Jesus predicted this to the letter. After this cruelty, this cruel scene, they then take the cloak off Jesus. They did their little show, and now they take it off, which probably felt pretty awful as well because those fibers have probably sunk into his open wounds. And then it says they led him out to crucify him. We already talked about the crucified part. We're not going to get into rehashing that again. Other than one thing that I will say is something we should reflect on that you may not uh, have uh, in mind is what it means for a Jewish person specifically to be crucified. Under Old Covenant laws and ordinances, those who were uh, executed for capital crimes were stoned to death, but often their bodies would then be hung on a beam or a stake or a tree likely done as a deterrent to, to show people what happens when you break the law, but it was also a sign to all in that community that such an individual was cursed by God. We see in Deuteronomy 21, uh, 22 to 23, I won't read the whole thing, but it says, for a man, for a hanged, for a hanged man is cursed by God. It's confusing me being cut up up there. So being hanged on a tree was evidence that you were under God's curse. So thinking, thinking about that, Jesus Christ, God's own son, his anointed Messiah, was being proclaimed to everybody that he was accursed, which you're like, oh, no, that's blasphemous. But as we know, if we examine Scripture closely, Jesus was cursed, and he was cursed for us so that we wouldn't be. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Or in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So this again was a fulfillment of what we uh, read about in scripture before this. I find it easy to get angry at these wicked soldiers who are putting on this show, at the scoffers all around, the people cheering for him to be crucified. I think something we need to soberly remember is that apart from the grace of God, we likely would be just as blind as these people. We would be openly mocking the Lord just like these men. Apart from the light of the gospel of grace that God is shining on us, our fundamental response probably wouldn't be that different from the Roman soldiers or from the Jewish leaders. We wouldn't have the opportunity to make fun of him straight to his face, but we would probably be not that different from people who are openly blaspheming him today, who publicly shame his name without any fear of retribution, who rage against his moral created order. We would, be, we would do the same. You've probably heard the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. Uh, that was attributed to a 16th century reformer as he was watching some criminals go to execution. But for the grace of God, go we. I think if we properly come to understand what you may hear referred to as the doctrines of grace, but this understanding that God is always the first mover in redeeming somebody. He goes in and rescues the spiritually dead 
people who are actively rebelling against him. I hope that that produces in you some profound humility, especially as you observe people rebelling against him. You see people acting in wicked ways. We see the consequences of that behavior. We can rightly judge those behaviors as wicked, but we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that we wouldn't be right there with them if we were apart from Christ, given the opportunity. So we should be humbled as we read this and we read the conduct of the soldiers and the behaviors that we see in our world today. Don't get arrogant of that. Be humbled and thankful and be prayerful that the Lord would open their eyes as he has opened ours. The next portion, I know that's kind of small, but the next portion, after we had the the parody, now we see some immense irony. And if you're reading my titles, I know I'm working overtime on the alliteration today, but I'm hoping it helps you remember these things. Um, But in in the first bit, Jesus is on his way from where they put on this little show to where he'll actually be put on a cross. And he's walking what's commonly called, I don't have it on screen, but it's commonly called the the Via Dolorosa. That's a Latin phrase. Does anybody know what uh, Via Dolorosa means? If you speak Spanish, you might be able to work your way there. Via means way. Or Does anybody take Spanish? All right, come on now. Via means way. I'm going to help you the rest of the way. Have you heard like the phrase, oh, tengo dolor de la espalda? Dolor means, you guys are making me look like an idiot right now. Dolor means pain. So dolorosa is like painful. So like the way of pain or the painful way. That's what the road means. Go tell your friends and act like you figured it out on your own instead of making me struggle up here. But via dolorosa is the painful way, and, and we'll see why. Um, but again, the, the little bit of irony there is this painful way or this way of pain that Jesus is taking to the cross is actually a path of victory. He's going to secure victory through that march. Here we do get a little bit of the logistics of the crucifixion spelled out for us too. So those contemned by death by crucifixion, not only did they get scourged, which is horrible, not only will they eventually be hung on a cross, which is horrible, but they have to haul the equipment there, right? Typically they would haul just the horizontal crossbar from that starting point to the place of crucifixion. And now I know Every single image you've ever seen of a depiction of this walk, he's carrying the whole cross, right? And it does make for a cool picture. Historically, that's not typically how it was done. They just carried the horizontal bar. But that would still be a tough haul. Um, again, you've just been scourged, so you're, you're pretty ripped up. And the crossbar would, lay, would weigh somewhere between 50 and 100 pounds. So it would be a pretty exhausting cross to bear as you're carrying it along the road. But especially the case if you've been scourged like Jesus was. And additionally, this wasn't like walking from here to the family center. And even if it was that short, they typically took the long way around to make sure as many people as possible could see this guy walking. So again, that's a bit of a deterrent for this is what happens when you cross the Roman Empire. So it probably didn't take long, but when it became clear that Jesus wasn't able to carry that beam on his own, one, Simon from Cyrene, which is a a major city in what we would consider now Libya, was compelled by the soldiers to take the cross. So he didn't volunteer for it. It was you out here and carrying it. So he ended up carrying the the, the cross and followed Jesus to uh, Golgotha. I want to pause there for a second because I think Mark would like us to. We don't really know anything else about this Simon of Cyrene. Uh, He may have been a Jew. He may have been in town for the Passover. Um, Since it says he was coming in from the country, that would make sense. 
So we don't know much about him, but what we can say with some certainty is that while he may not have been well known to Mark's readers, apparently his sons were, because his sons are mentioned, Alexander and Rufus. They're like, you know, Alexander and Rufus's dad. And it's very possible that they were members of the church in Rome, as a Rufus and his mother is mentioned in Romans 16, 13. And if that's the case, and I know I'm moving into the realm of speculation here, I think a reasonable argument could be made that perhaps this experience of seeing their father carrying a cross and following Jesus, identifying Jesus so closely with their father now, may have even led to their conversion. And even if that didn't happen, it's still a powerful thought that we can take a lesson from. What a blessing it would be for a father to have your kids look at you and see you as someone who follows Jesus, associate you that closely with him. And even with those of us that aren't parents, when we take up a cross and follow Jesus, that has impact on other people. Other people will see that, and that could even be one of the tools that the Lord uses to draw people to himself. So you've probably never heard a, you've probably heard a dare to be Daniel, a brave like David. I want you to, I don't have any alliteration for this, I didn't plan this ahead, can't think of something that goes with Simon, but do stuff like Simon. There we go. Stuff like Simon, which is to carry a cross and follow Jesus, okay? If you didn't write that down, let's not, okay? We don't need to take that out of this room. Um, but anyway, moving on. They take Jesus to, now it says, Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Pretty cool name. And then it says, and there they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now there's a, there's a little bit of ideas about what this is about. Popular opinion is that the, the they there, this is they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, may have been a group of women who kind of took it upon themselves to try to minister to people that were being crucified, kind of like women described in Proverbs uh, 31.6, and that the wine mixed with myrrh may have been some kind of pain-reducing drink, almost like a little bit of a narcotic, like a numbing type thing to make what they were about to experience a little bit less miserable. Others suggest that this also was part of the mockery, offering him this disgusting tasting drink as a mockery of like a royal drink of getting the best wine for a king. And then there's another option where Jesus may have refused this because of what he said when he instituted the Lord's Supper. He said he would not drink of the cup until he would drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So not until after he secures the kingdom. And um, John 19.28 says that as Jesus was just about to die on the cross, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. So that could have been why he didn't take it yet either. I'm not going to take a bullet for any of those interpretations, uh, but I am partial to the third one. But any of the three seem reasonable to me. But continuing on in, in verses 24 and 25, we do see the soldiers gambling for his garments. So I didn't make a slide for that, but that's some more alliteration, gambling for garments. But that's also another fulfillment of prophecy. And we also see at this point that it is the third hour. Does anybody know what time of day that means when they say it's the third hour? 9 a.m. So at this point, it's 9 a.m. So he's gone from his trial to, hauling his cro- to getting scourged, to hauling his cross up a hill, to now basically being hanged. And it's only 9 a.m., earlier than many of you wake up on the weekends. They don't mess around uh, back then. And now um, the remainder of the passage, we're, we're getting to this point, really elaborates on some more cruel and scornful treatment of Jesus. And that leads us to this 
immense prophetic irony that we see here as well. For those with eyes to see and hearts to understand like us, this whole scene isn't just like a mob getting in some really solid jabs at Jesus before he dies, this guy who was acting like he was a big deal now being chopped down. People tend to like to see that in culture. We're probably guilty of that. We like to see people who think they're a big deal um, be brought down. That's not all that is happening here, and really that's not what's happening here at all. What we know is that in what they're saying, the Lord of glory is actually being vindicated. Um, Throughout every second of this torturous day, tortuous day, the whole scene is actually confirming what Jesus has been teaching since day one in Mark's gospel. His kingdom was coming. It really was at hand. He was being enthroned, not in spite of the cross, not slowed down by the cross, but by way of the cross. In real time here, things were happening that were not at all like they seemed. This is like what um, Joseph came to understand in Genesis 50-20, is what all these people meant for evil, God meant for good. They weren't running the show. They weren't getting the victory like they thought they were. In this event, each of these scoffers, each of the soldiers, the revilers, the, the Jewish leaders who orchestrated the whole thing, They were all acting according to their sinful desires. They're fully accountable for their actions. If they did not repent prior to their death, they would receive the just penalty for them. But even as they were all doing this, as individuals with their own motives, they were also acting in accordance with God's perfect plan. We read in uh, Acts 4 that all involved in the crucifixion of Jesus were gathered, it says, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. This is all part of the plan from day one. Next, we're told that there was a sign on Jesus. It was customary for a crucifixion for them to put like a placard uh, setting across the top of the cross to say what the charges were. Prior to that, when they were marching up, someone would be holding a sign of what the charges were so everyone can see what he did and be warned that if they did the same, this is the penalty that they would get. It was usually a big board, like a, like almost like a chalkboard, but they would paint on with red or black letters what it was. And the purported crime for which Jesus was being executed was technically treason. And the sign said, uh, King of the Jews. That was his charge, that he was claiming to be King of the Jews. Now that is, that charge is both true and false a little bit, right? It was true because Jesus really was God's appointed Messiah. He was King of the Jews. Um, Interestingly, we read in John 19, 21 to 22, that the Jewish leaders didn't want the placard to say king of the Jews. They wanted it to say, this man said, I am king of the Jews, but Pilate said no dice on that. I think that was for a few reasons. First, uh, and I think Mike talked about this last week, Pilate kind of knew that these charges were nonsense. He didn't really want to crucify Jesus, um, but he was ultimately too cowardly to, to do anything about it. So, at least in a way of not letting the Jewish leaders get completely off the hook to not completely weasel out of culpability. He kept the wording uh, as it was. It was also a way for Pilate to shame the Jews a little bit, kind of like those Roman soldiers were, to make the Jews look weak when compared to the empire. Uh, You know, what kind of king is really a threat to the empire if this is his outcome? And then third, I think Pilate also needed a decent enough reason to justify Jesus's death in case any of his bosses wanted to know what's the deal with all the hubbub around here. Since he basically thought Jesus was innocent but still turned him over because he was afraid of any backlash, 
He needed a legitimate enough sounding charge, treason being a good one, to warrant such a punishment. Now, the joke, of course, uh, was on Pilate because Jesus really was king, and he himself is exalted above any earthly one. Just read Psalm 2. But, of course, in another sense, the charge was false because Jesus was not the kind of king most people were thinking of. He was the king of a completely different kind of kingdom, not bound by any geographical borders. So in other words, Jesus, he didn't come for a political revolution like some of his followers were expecting, but a spiritual one. We read that clearly in John 18. Now, this spiritual revolution has massive impacts on any kind of political situation, but the political world was not the means by which Jesus was leading a revolution. It was ultimately through the cross. So the point here is that what what these people are all meaning for mockery, even just the sign they put on here, all meant for mockery, for scorn, and political maneuvering, ironically, was true. It was still kind of true. It was truer than they could really imagine. The king of kings was in their midst, but they couldn't see it. Next, we see that where Jesus' cross went up, it also mentions that there were two robbers with him. The more literal translation would be insurrectionists, one on his left and one on his right. Now, if any of you still have your Bibles open to this section, we'll do a little bit of Bible trivia for you. Does anybody notice anything strange surrounding verse 27? Or maybe the following verse that comes after 27? Anybody noticing anything weird there? There's no verse 28. Most of you probably don't have a verse 28, and it skips from verse 27 to verse 29. Does anybody have a King James or a New King James? You're probably, if you do, you'd be like, I have verse 28. Um, if you did say that, you'd see verse 28 that says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. But that's not in most of our modern translations. Um, what that is, is it's uh, calling back to a quote from Isaiah 53, 12, pointing out that this stuff again was fulfilling prophecy. And were any of you here, it's been, I don't know, maybe it's even been a year when I talked about, you know, how we got our Bible, kind of that manuscript tradition, if you were here, do you also remember any of it? It's been a few weeks since Daylight Savings, guys, okay? Well, if you did, you might remember how um, we've gotten a certain amount of Greek manuscripts over time, and, you know, there's things like textual variants, if that's ringing a bell. It's really exciting stuff. I can tell you're into it. Um, but when, like, the King James was translated in 1611, I think it was, we only had a certain body of Greek manuscripts of, of these accounts, and most of those manuscripts had that verse 28, and that's also around the time when the verse numbers were added. But over the, the centuries, when we found so many more, literally thousands more Greek manuscripts that are even older than those ones used for the King James, that text isn't there. So it's suspected that some scribes, almost like adding footnotes, added that little section in there as they were copying. Hey, by the way, this is calling back to Isaiah. So, if you have a King James or New King James, and you, you might see this in other places where there are verses in one that are not in our modern translations. This isn't the only place you'll see a verse be skipped over. So don't think of it as a, as a typo. It's actually good that we're trying to make sure that what we are reading, what we have, is the closest thing to what Mark actually um, wrote down. Okay, continuing on. The mockery and scorn continues as we keep moving forward. We see here that Jesus was taunted by some stirred-up loiterers, just some people watching, um, and they laugh at him, basically. They say, ha, 
They remember what he said. Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it yourself in three days. Like, you sound like a big shot. Save yourself. Come on down from the cross. Like mocking uh, the power that he claimed to have that he apparently did not. And here we see some more irony. At least I think it's irony. I know the word irony gets misused uh, quite a bit. We're going to go with irony. Um, They are missing the message of what Jesus was even saying when he said that. When he was saying this temple would be torn down and after three days be rebuilt, he was referring to himself. He was the temple that was going to be destroyed right before their eyes, and then he will be raised again in three days. If he came down, like to their taunting, then that wouldn't be the case. But complete swing and a miss for them. They weren't understanding. Not to be outdone in the rude and evil taunting, we're told that the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. Can't even save himself, right? So in one sense, they too were a little bit right, but in another sense, they had that completely backwards. Um, Firstly, they were wrong because Jesus absolutely could have saved himself if he wanted to, but he couldn't if he wanted to pay the ransom for the sins of his people. He couldn't, again in quotes, save both himself in the moment physically while also still saving others for their eternity. Somebody's life is owed in these scenarios. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. If Jesus did save himself by coming down, we'd still be stuck paying for our own sins ourselves, which we cannot do, meaning that we would be receiving the due judgment for our sins. If Jesus chose to came down from the cross, those who the Father had given to him would be eternally lost, left to ourselves. So they were kind of right. He couldn't save himself. But they also 100% missed the mark. Jesus did save others by voluntarily not saving himself. Because Jesus Christ chose and agreed before the foundations of the world to lose his life, not only was his life ultimately saved as well, as he was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father, but our eternal souls were saved. So physically... Jesus had the ability to come down from the cross if he wanted to, but his holiness, his perfect plan, his love for his father, and ultimately his love for his bride, us, the church, kept him there. There's a lot more that could be said uh, about all that, but suffice it to say, at this point then and at this point now, the enemies of Christ still completely misunderstand what the cross is all about, and they despise it, and they despise the Christian church the whole game of the world is really to save, it, to save themselves. Uh, unbelievers live for themselves. They're looking to preserve their own comforts. They're serving their own selfish desires. And that's why they reject the gospel by the millions even today. They don't understand the value of the cross. But if and when, by God's grace, their eyes are opened, they would see that gaining the whole world, gaining anything in this life, is really no comparison to losing their eternal soul. But this scornful crowd, the crowd who is actively mocking Jesus there, surely, think, in, think about this, in that crowd who were mocking Jesus, there were surely men and women there who would end up following Jesus just a few days later. But in that moment, they were ashamed of this king. Some of them may have even believed but wanted to go along with what the crowd was doing because they didn't want to look weird. And this is something we're likely guilty of ourselves 
from time to time. We don't want to make it too obvious in certain circles that we follow Jesus and we actually believe that this book is true. We, we stumble, we stay quiet, we screw up. But the good news is that our king doesn't stumble and he did exactly what he set out to do. He actually practiced what he preached and we, the securing of our souls, is the fruit of that. Our screw-ups can't undo what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's, it's quite possible that following Jesus will cause you to lose your life. Now, in America, you're not likely to be killed, like in many places around the world, but following Jesus does have a cost. We might lose some level of prestige. We might lose some of our relationships, our reputation, maybe our jobs, if we count that as a loss. But in the end, also like Jesus, what we're gaining is really beyond description. We get to be part of this kingdom of God, and we keep our eyes on him and what he has secured for us. It's really no comparison to anything we might lose here. Our section ends here with just one more little dig, and that's that even those who were crucified with him, they were also reviling him. We don't get to see it here in Mark's gospel, but we learn elsewhere that one of those on Jesus' right or left would repent of his sins. And Jesus said, surely I will see you today in paradise. Showing us, this is a lesson for us, that it's never too late to repent. You've never done too much to, be, to make yourself ineligible for God's redeeming grace. But what we'll end with today is this, okay? I want to, what do we take away from all this other than the, the Latin lesson that fell flat? What else do we take away for today? What do I want for you? Well, if I were to just give you one imperative, like to tell you to go and do something, it would be as simple as this. Just behold your king. Behold your king. Look at Jesus Christ. Read through this account and look at what Jesus Christ did and what he endured and what he endured having you in mind. This was done to redeem us. Jesus Christ is king. He's entered his kingdom and he is ruling and reigning today. And for some, that's really frightening news because he is holy and he judges sinners. But that's not the whole news. The good news is that he not only rules and reigns justly, but he also redeems and is merciful. And why should we believe this? How do we know that? Well, we know because we read that Jesus did not come down from the cross. He did something much more glorious. And spoiler alert for the next sessions, he did die on that cross, but then he rose again triumphantly from the dead. And in doing so, he paid the penalty for my sins and for yours. He not only endured this pain, but he took upon himself the full wrath of a holy God so that those who would confess him as Savior and King wouldn't have to. And we know he's worthy. We know he's worthy of all this because his resurrection did validate and vindicate before the Father that he was sufficient. The, the resurrection is the Father's everlasting testimony for us that Jesus Christ really was and is King. Talking about the cross can be a really emotional thing. It can get emotional for you, and those emotions can typically even more so get stirred up when we think about the brutality like we did before, and that's not wrong. But do remember that Jesus just doesn't want us to, to feel certain ways. He doesn't want our sentiment he wants us. He wants our souls. So my prayer for you and your soul would be that you and your soul belong to King Jesus. So if you haven't put your trust in that king, don't waste time. Let's do that. <laughs> do that. And if you have done it, remember. Remember what you confessed when you, when you 
said, I believe that Jesus is king and I need him to redeem me. If you've been baptized, remember what that signified, that you too died with Christ and were also raised with him. All of you that are believers, you've been bought with with a price. So now go and live like someone who is part of the kingdom of this king. I'll end with one of the verses from the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You guys familiar with that song? It's like a, a new hymn, kind of. Um, which is pulled from this event in the Gospels. It reminds us of the reality of who we were apart from the saving grace of God and what he did for us in spite of how we were. And it concludes with the good news that what he did even secures the salvation of sinners like us. So I'll just read this here. I'm not going to sing it for you. It says, uh, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Let's pray. Well, God, the, the cross is a, a gruesome picture, a reminder of how wicked, sinful men can be, but even more so, it reminds us of how merciful of a king you are, how loving of a king you are, and uh, what it takes to, to punish sin. And we're thankful that that's not a payment we need to pay because Christ paid it for us. I pray that we would reflect on that, that that wouldn't be something we, we quickly read past and go on to the next thing, but something we dwell on and that it causes us to have a change of mind, that we would continually repent of our shortcomings, but also uh, look towards something, look towards your goodness and seek to live in a way that would be pleasing to you, our King, not so that uh, you would die for us, that we'd be worthy of it, but in, in response to the fact that you've already done it. Thank you for your word. I thank you that we can trust that it is true and that it can bring us life. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.